You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Erica Bakiaki, who is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, also senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute, where she runs the Wollstonecraft Project. You've also visited at Harvard Law and had a number of other positions, and you have a background in theology and law. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much, Greg. It's great to be with you. Now, of course, I forgot to mention that you're also the author and editor of a number of books. The most recent book is this one called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, which is really, it's, I guess it's an intellectual history of the women's movement going all the way back to Mary Wollstonecraft. And before I read this book, I didn't really realize, and perhaps most people don't realize, how important of a thinker Mary Wollstonecraft actually was. I think she's probably the first political philosopher of the family in a way, right? Where she attempts to stitch together the importance of kind of, I guess, the private virtues and public virtues. And she's had, I think, a profound impact, but one that has been underappreciated. And I think the book tells the story not only of her thinking, but also how her thinking led to a bunch of other strands within our political philosophy and within the legal thinking in the last couple of centuries. And how I think you're calling for a reclaiming of her legacy, which I think has been somewhat forgotten by the women's movement. So maybe we can start by just talking about Mary Wollstonecraft. First of all, what makes her thought so important? And why is it that you think her thought has been underappreciated by people who study intellectual history and political philosophy? Yeah, I studied her first as a women's studies student when I was at Middlebury College in the 1990s but only read a brief bit of it. And really, at that point, I think within women's studies, she was read as this proto-feminist who really had a lot to say about education. But at that time, since she was brought into the sort of women's studies canon by well women's studies professors, a lot of the grounding of her thought, so her religiosity, her interest in sort of virtue, and we would now say virtue ethics, since that's very much a part of the academy now, was really, I think, pushed to the side. And and really, there was just an interest in how she talked about sort of rights and education and all of that. So um, as a basic background, she wrote in the late 1700s. So she's an 18th, 18th century thinker and died at a pretty young age. She died in childbirth and wrote quite a bit, though, before then. She was the oldest of a fairly big family. She had a tumultuous upbringing, heard her father kind of abusing her mother, raping her mother, etc. Father was alcoholic, had to care for her younger siblings. She had to rescue one of her sisters from an abusive marriage. She had another friend who, a very close friend of hers who died in childbirth. She really was up and against the, the ways in which women's lack of rights at that time and really being treated much as akin to property within marriage, at least. She's running up against that in her own personal life. She was self-trained, so was incredibly well-read and had many teachers along the way who were really fundamental to, to shaping her thought, I would say. We could talk about many of those, but when she was a pretty young woman, she opened a school 
in Newington Green, where a, a very controversial statue has been erected of her recently, and and then fell into the congregation. She was Anglican by practice at that point, wrote an important book on the education of daughters, a really incredible book that really was found more recently in the last couple of decades, The Female Reader, where she has these four beautifully, deeply Christian prayers, which people don't recognize about her, but then also is writing for kind of the edification of young women. So she has a bunch of Shakespeare and Milton, a bunch from the Bible, and she's basically trying to help women not succumb to having men think for them, that she wants women to think on their own and be formed really morally and intellectually so that they can be independent of mind. And she's especially interested really in in the institution of marriage and how it really was that women, because they had no training, education, and anything else, they were meant and preparing themselves their whole young life for marriage. And if they didn't luck out there, well, they may end up having to be prostitutes or some other sort of thing. So informing themselves to be married, they very much were interested in kind of appearances. And she really said, even within marriage, like, We've, because of the important role of a wife, of a mother, especially in kind of inculcating virtue, in being a companion to one's husband, one has to be educated intellectually and morally and really formed. It's important work of life is kind of formation and virtue. And that's something that many people just didn't, don't know about her, <laughs> this, this kind of background because of her really important book of Vindication of the Rights of Women, which is really what's read, what's explored. She also had a book called The Vindication of the Rights of Men, where she is criticizing Burke in his defense of the English monarchy. So she's positioned against him within the French Revolution. And I think that's also a much more complicated story there as well. So anyway, that's her background. I mean, the last thing to mention too is her personal life, because it's something that I don't know when, what it is about being a woman writer, but for some reason, the personal life of women is picked apart much more than the life of someone like Rousseau, who, by the way, was her chief interlocutor in a vindication of the rights of women. He had five children with a mistress and put them in orphanages, but we don't really hear that of the man who wrote this you know, famous treatise on children's education, right? But we hear about Wollstonecraft, who had all sorts of these beautiful kind of um, things to say about sort of equal dignity within marriage, the deep friendship of equals within marriage, that both men and women are really called and expected and should be expected to care for children because of how important that work is, motherhood and fatherhood. And as you said, sort of the work of the family being what undergirds the public virtue, which I think all of us would like to see more of <laughs> these days. So all of that lays the ground for her thought. But then she has these a couple of tumultuous relationships of her own where you know, her first, she imagines her, him to be this kind of new man who she imagined, yet he runs off with other women. She is in great despair. She's had a baby. She, I think, is probably suffering from so, some postpartum depression, but who knows? And she attempts suicide two different times and calling him back to her, which he never does return. She then ends up married to the anarchist William Godwin. And is it's a very short-lived marriage because she's pregnant before they marry. She then dies in childbirth. And he goes on to write this biography of her. And it's really one that is that has shaped immediate thought of her and for great ill at that point. I think he really misunderstood her. And so it's only in the last probably 30 to 40 years you've seen women political theorists. Now a new theologian has written this incredible book who really tried to reclaim her thought out from under her personal life. So you've got those kind of on the conservative end who bemoan her 
childbearing outside of marriage, then you have those who really lionize her childbearing out of marriage and think of her as this free love thinker. She really is much more complex than any of that. And so it's been really beautiful, I think, to see both women and some men, political theorists, historians, again, theologians, begin to take seriously and really read her whole, in the entire corpus of her. And uh, I've been really grateful to, to learn from many of them. Yeah. And I think what I found interesting is that she emphasized the importance of the family and the family unit, in particular, the married couple as forming the basis for the good society, right? And for political liberty and rights and so forth. But at the same time, there are other people that did that said this, but for them, they really saw this as flowing from a, a division of labor, right? <laughs> Where it was the women that were responsible for the private realm and the men that were responsible for the public realm. And she said that those roles should not be so clearly divided, right? I think that was really what made her unique was a combination of those two things. So maybe tell a little bit with respect to the first, I mean, there were others that were recognizing the importance of the family. I mean, you talk about de Tocqueville, right? And how de Tocqueville made these observations about America, right? Yeah, that's right. So of course, Tocqueville is what, like 50 years after Wollstonecraft and his observations of America. What's fascinating about her relationship with America <laughs> is that her teacher, Richard Price, was very conversant with many of the American founders. And so she was actually in his congregation exactly when Abigail and John Adams were. And so he really, Richard Price was this real champion of the American Revolution, in part because of what he hoped would be the advance of freedom and virtue together. And for those who have read Founders, especially John Adams, but others too, there's a real understanding that this is an experiment in ordered liberty and really individual Republican citizens, smaller Republican citizens, of course, need to be living virtuous lives, that you can't have political self-government without personal self-government. And so she was very much in that kind of line of thought. And so Abigail Adams would go on to call herself Wollstonecraft's pupil. So she really is this, I think, American thinker in a lot of ways, but you're absolutely right. There were thinkers, you know, who Tocqueville actually learned quite a bit from. I doubt he read Wollstonecraft, but he certainly read Rousseau and he read Locke. And those Enlightenment thinkers, too, were really thinking a lot about the importance of family relationships. But I would say, especially with Locke and Rousseau, you have very different ideas of the family and include and Burke, too. If you see Burke as the kind of conserver of tradition, of English traditions, who really sees a very gendered account of virtue. Same with Rousseau. And really, if Burke is her interlocutor in Vindication of the Rights of Men, Rousseau is interlocutor in Vindication of the Rights of Women. And she's really anxious to say why she's pushing back and talking with them, really discussing with them virtue. Yes, she agrees with them that virtue must underlie government and society and personal relations and public relations. Absolutely. And we have all sorts of great quotes we could share with you where she says that really people have to be formed virtuously in the family in order to go out into the public sphere and do anything worthwhile. But she's really contesting their, their gendered account of virtues, both with Burke and Rousseau. And why is that? And what's fascinating about her is that she goes to a source that maybe some feminists wouldn't expect, but I think is really a quite a compelling source, which is what she calls the perfection of God. She says, I build my morality on the perfection of God. So what she wants to do is say, just like Martin Luther King did, just like the writers of Seneca Falls are at Seneca Falls of the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions do, they say, we want to go to a natural justice. We want to look at how 
the perfection of God, the goodness of God, the justice of God informs these kinds of questions. And she says, if it's the goodness of God, then really, and that's what we're imitating. That's what human beings, when they seek the good, they're really, they're yearning after the goodness of God, some higher good. And so we have to order ourselves accordingly. And God is one, she says, and God is, though we, of course, she even talks about the fatherhood of God and all that, all the virtues must be required of men and women. And so what she says is we don't want this gendered account where women are expected to be modest and chaste and pure and men are expected to be just and courageous and other kinds of intellectual virtues. Really, men should be required and expected to be modest and chaste (laughs) and women should be expected to be just and courageous and all that. So we want the whole panoply of virtues. Why? Because women, just like men, are rational creatures created by and responsible to God. And so in order to live full human lives and then in order to be great mothers, great wives, great participants in society, great, as she says, fellow creatures, right? They need to have all the virtues. And she means both the moral and intellectual virtues. She wants robust, rigorous education for women so they can develop their minds to their capacities. And she also wants physical development of women too, so they can become strong in both mind, heart, character, and their bodies as well. So she she basically said that men and women are sexed in their bodies, but not in their souls. Yeah. So that's a, yeah, she says it's unphilosophical to talk about the soul as sexed. And this is kind of an older account. Rousseau has a very sexed account of the soul, right? That there's almost like two different human species. There's like the female soul and the male soul, and they're so incredibly different. And I think what's, here's an important distinction for Wollstonecraft is that the soul is rational and unsexed, but the soul and body are very much knit together. So she's not a Cartesian. And that's a really important thing. There's not this way in which kind of the soul like is the person and carries around the body like a briefcase or something. (laughs) The soul and the body influence each other. You could say all the way down and all the way up. And so she'd say virtue is, is sexless in some sense, right? Everybody should, all men and women should seek to acquire all the virtues, but their duties may be different, she says. Why might their duties be different? Their responsibilities might be different because of the bodies they are, right? And so because of motherhood and fatherhood requiring of us different kinds of responsibilities because of, well, what mothers and fathers are, right? The way in which women reproduce inside themselves and men reproduce outside themselves. And there are different kinds of responsibilities that come with that. She acknowledges that the virtues may look different in a man and a woman, very much so. But the goal of having virtues, of having the whole panoply of virtues is very much the same because it is just being fully human. Yeah, now not to skip too far ahead, but when I was reading about Justice Ginsburg, right, and her sort of political philosophy, in particular in the earlier part of her political philosophy, it, it seemed remarkably consistent with what Wollstonecraft was advocating. Yeah, so I think that's right. One of the things I say is that by really fighting for women to be understood as equal citizens, Ginsburg is basically constitutionalizing Wollstonecraft's principle. What Ginsburg is fighting against in the 1970s as an advocate for the ACLU is she's saying we shouldn't have these laws that basically confine women to maternity that expect that if just because a woman has the capacity for childbirth, has the capacity for motherhood, she should be kept out of professions. And that was, I think, a really important gain and a really important, you're right, kind of underlying political philosophy. The problem I have with Ginsburg, (laughs) and I have these two back-to-back chapters, is, is that I think she actually has a very Lockean view of citizenship. And I didn't get to that when I was talking about how those Enlightenment thinkers thought about citizenship. But for Locke, there's a way in which, 
And Locke is really the premier liberal political theorist who gives, I think, our founders an account of what citizenship looks like. And so virtue is, of course, necessary. But when liberal citizens, so that's white propertied men, enter into civil society and form a government by the consent of the governed, they leave women behind, right? They leave women in the private sphere. And so with liberal sort of philosophy, Lockean, Locke's philosophy, there's this erection of the private and public spheres. And so women are there to care for, do the really important work of nurturing those Republican citizens. And that's where you get understandings of Republican motherhood and all that when you come into the early time after the American Revolution. It's this sort of high calling. It's not, women are not just kind of child bearers or there for the sexual pleasure of men or whatever, or property, whatever. Now women have this high task. And that's what Tocqueville notices, that American women take very seriously their work of nurturing and caring for their children, especially these sons will go on to become Republican citizens. The trouble is when, you know, when you have this kind of liberal view of citizenship, where you need to be autonomous from caregiving, when you try to bring women into that, there's this way in which you prize autonomy, prize independence above all, and then you kind of leave children behind. And so I think that's sort of, as much as I admire so much of Ginsburg's work, early on especially, I think that's her underlying view of citizenship, that it is based on autonomy. This is a view that really much of the Western tradition has had, that you need to be independent. You need to be, well, at some point back then, you had to be land-owning so that you could think clearly about what it is to engage in Republican government. And I think that was a real trick for her to do that. And what it ended up, I think, having her prize abortion rights at the very kind of pinnacle of her thought. Not to summarize the book too much, but it seems like there are two possible paths that the women's rights movement could have taken. One, which would offer up a vision, which sort of combined the best aspects of these two different versions of virtue. And another, which sort of pursued kind of the male vision of virtue. And I think you're arguing that maybe we've gone too far in the latter direction and we need to go more in the former direction. Yeah, I think you're right. The older traditional account of masculine virtue, but I think there's a way it's not just masculine virtue. I think it's also a lot of due to industrialization and capitalism and the rise of kind of a liberal understanding of the person that I don't see that as really masculine virtue. I see that as capitalist virtues. And so it's pushing men to live lives where they're choosing consuming autonomous beings, which they have an easier time living that out (laughs) because they can kind of leave children to the side for women to take care of or whatever. They can strive to, uh, to accumulate goods and have own property and make lots of money in the workplace. And I think that's the way they've gone. And then women jump on in liberal feminism to imitate that way of being. I tend to think that's just not a great understanding of virtue, or it's just a very anorexic understanding of virtue. Certainly, there's some great virtues of being really good at your job and working hard and having industriousness and all of that. And I think both men and women should do that in whatever realm they inhabit. But I think there's all sorts of other virtues that come out of different parts of what it is to be human. So we're deeply interdependent, right? We're deeply relational. We're familial beings, right? So I think just as I think really good men have always seen that their work outside the home is to kind of make sure that the work inside the home can be cared for and all of that, I think a big shift happens, and we can discuss this, but with industrialization, the rise of capitalism, where 
women start to become far more dependent where they used to work together in the agrarian homestead, right? Women start to become far more dependent and that dependency puts them at great risk, right? Because they now depend on men for a paycheck. If you have a virtuous husband, maybe that works really well for you. If you don't, or your husband abandons you, or you never marry or whatever, that becomes a much more risky ordeal for women. And so it's not just women's ambition that sent them into the workplace. It's a real desire to have some sort of insurance against, I think, male male vice in, in a lot of ways, which is what you saw in that first wave of feminism. Yeah, I mean, all of these debates play out, of course, in the legal domain, in legislative domain. And you go back to the law of coverture, right? And you, you say, well, coverture wasn't really as big of a problem in the kind of agricultural world as it became in the industrial world. And what I found fascinating is how the themes of these debates they seem to be the same over these centuries. And so when everyone began to see the problem with coverture, there were two alternatives. One was separate property and one was joint property. And we decided to go the separate property route. So how does that debate capture a lot of the themes that we're still discussing today? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. There's a lot of legal history in there. And so for those who you know don't know their legal history as well as you do, so coverture is basically the common law sort of approach that William Blackstone and his commentaries on the law of England write into existence. And that's the legal backdrop of the Constitution because the common law is what was taken up by the American founders. So it's English law. And there's some debate, I think, and I think I'd love to see more scholarship on this about whether Blackstone and putting that in black and white ends up really enacting it more, especially in a Puritan setting where you've got scriptural kind of ways in which you can see men and women are one in being when they marry. And that one in being is the man. (laughs) You could also, as you're saying, to think of that differently, you could think men and women are one in being and that one in being is the marriage, different ways of thinking about it. it really is kind of the common law way of thinking about it, that the being and the existence, the legal existence of the woman is suspended during marriage. I'm now quoting, and she's incorporated and consolidated into the husband. And so it's under whose wing protection and cover. That's where that coverture comes for, cover. So she's under the cover. And the idea of this in the common law is that men would be responsible to care for and nurture and provide for their wives. And so there's this important responsibility that men have. But in more of the civil law tradition, you see something different, and that's coming out of Germany, but also in Louisiana, you have a much more kind of understanding of the shared ownership of everything. And this is much more in keeping with actually how things were, as you mentioned, and I mentioned before, prior to industrialization, right? So think of the kind of agrarian homestead. Most of America was agrarian, most of England was agrarian, or you had women working alongside men. Sure, more in the home than out, and men were more outside the home in the fields, but they were very much cooperative and collaborative and all that. And so there's a push very early on. In fact, we always think of the first wave of the women's movement in the mid 19th century, so mid 1800s, as being all about suffrage. Well, suffrage comes way later, <laughs> The very first thing that comes about is a real push for, well, two things. We can talk about voluntary motherhood, but the first one is really joint property ownership. And that's what you mentioned. And that's basically this idea that men and women, they're putting all their productivity into the home. And so they should share in their kind of economic responsibility of the home. And so what happens in um, separate property and separate property is actually what gets pushed ahead. So 
the early women's rights advocates weren't so successful with joint property. In fact, we didn't have joint property ownership until the 1970s and 1980s. So it's like a year, a hundred years later, what happens is you have legislatures passing separate property ownership, which is basically to say like, if a woman brings property into the marriage or if she earns her own wages, then she has title to those. And that's really, if you think about not many women were earning their own wages, the productive work they were doing was inside the home. So joint property just makes so much more sense. But you're right. There's a way in which those push forward. There's debates and I kind of catalog and and show these debates through industrialization where you have those people like Alice Paul following John Stuart Mill, who, by the way, was a big advocate of separate property ownership in, in England. You have them arguing, look, women need equal contract rights. And that makes sense to all of us now, right? Of course, women need equal contract rights. And so those people were very much, well, I should say Alice Paul was very much in favor of the Lochner decision. This is an infamous decision now, right? Where the court in 1905 struck down regulations to keep men bakers at that point from working more than I think 10 hours a day. And so Alice Paul is all in favor of that because she says, good, contract rights, liberty of contract, because that's how they decided it. Well, then you have this kind of Wollstonecraftian strand, which is Florence Kelly, who basically says liberty of contract is a total legal fiction. If women are competing with men in the workplace, how are they going to take care of their children? How are they going to take care of the family and all that? So there's, yes, competing strands. And those run right up now to debates over the ERA, which is Alice Paul initially is the one who was the author of the ERA. So do we want strict equality for men and women? Or do we think that women have special responsibilities because of their capacity for childbirth and many women desiring to care for young children, infants in the home, young children? And so should there be special kind of either protections or special allowances for women in in the workplace? And these are debates, as you say, that are going on right now. Yeah, I remember Lochner, of course, from con law, but I don't remember Mueller versus Oregon, which is just as significant, right? Because it creates a carve out, right, from Lochner, where... It's perfectly fine when it comes to regulating contract when gender is involved, right? (laughs) So there was that whole debate whether it was okay to pass legislation that specifically targeted women as long as it had some kind of protective motivation, right? So, you know, with Lochner, the idea was, as I understand it, there were these, you know, large established bakeries that wanted to keep the kind of small bakeries from competing. And so they put the hour rules in place. And the feminists at the time argued that these rules were essentially making it more difficult for women to, to compete with men. And so they opposed these protections, but there were others that said, no, like women need this protection. And you do see this same debate happening later when we talk about providing maternity leave as opposed to providing a parental leave. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's great. Lochner is one of those cases that has been really there's an understanding of it, and then there's a new understanding of it, and more historical evidence comes about. And so, yeah, I think your take of it is how it's understood today. But at the beginnings, it was understood just as labor protections. Like, we just want to protect these bakers. <laughs> I think more has come out since then. And so you talk about the voluntary motherhood movement. And what I found fascinating about this is this also could be seen as the ancestral or the origins of both the anti-abortion movement and the kind of pro-abortion rights movement. Yeah, it's so interesting with voluntary motherhood because there are, I would say, those who have kind of see it as their own, like their own inheritance. And I, so let me spell that out. So voluntary motherhood, like joint property ownership, is one of the most basic 
claims, arguments that those first wave women's rights advocates are making. So way prior to suffrage, right? And I mean, yes, property rights, contract rights, all of those at the same time. But it's an argument because of the nature of coverture that they're saying, look, within marriage, men have this kind of, whether it's a, because of interpretations of scripture at the time, because of interpretations of coverture, even another common law doctrine called consortium, where women owe their services to men, that there's an idea that men basically have a sexual prerogative to sex within marriage. We're talking about within marriage, but that they can just take women, take their wives whenever they want. And so there's a lot of pushback against that. And so what these women say, and this is really fascinating, I think, for people who just think of feminism in the terms that we have today, that they just assume feminists have always been kind of for abortion rights. What's fascinating about these women, and this is some, goes from some of the more Christian women all the way to the more radical women. So some radical women like Victoria Woodhull, especially incredibly radical, but they all understood that a new human being was created in pregnancy and that women, when they were pregnant, owed duties of care to their children. And so what they're saying is that, look, if we're the ones who have this kind of disproportionate burden in pregnancy, then we're the ones who have a right to determine when and under what circumstances we have sex, right? So we engage in that act that could make us a mother. So when we talk about voluntary motherhood, it's voluntarily engaging in the act, sex, that could make one a mother. And so what they argue for is actually kind of a periodic abstinence, which they try to have all different techniques to do this, but their science wasn't very advanced at the time. So it's basically by like mutual decision, if you have a husband who's on board or a unilateral decision of the woman, because they're trying to harmonize and equalize what I refer to as these asymmetries, reproductive asymmetries, which is basically that women and men engage in the same sexual act, but it's women who carry this disproportionate burden, but of course, also the privilege of having a child. And so they're asking, they're calling upon men to have habits of chastity. And it's very similar to what Wollstonecraft in 1792 in her vindication of the rights of women is asking men for as well. So one of the suffragist slogans was votes for women, chastity for men. And so you see, and I think it's helpful actually to just, let me just quote Victoria Woodhull because this language is like, for those who don't know this history, it's, whoa, they said that? (laughs) So she you know, and this is very interestingly for me as a legal scholar, for you as a lawyer, is right around the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And so what's fascinating, fast forward to when in the 1970s and 80s and later, you have pro-choice feminists arguing that the 14th Amendment should allow for, has built in there in the Liberty Clause or even Equal Protection Clause, protection for abortion rights. You have back when that clause is ratified, you have women who are in this women's rights movement saying things like this. So here's Victoria Woodhill. Again, so she's really interesting because she's this outspoken advocate for constitutional equality for women. She's the first woman to run for president on the Equal Rights Party platform. She's the first woman to testify before Congress. She's pretty radical in a lot of ways. Um, And she talks about in a piece on children's rights, she says these rights begin while yet they remain the fetus. So here's her kind of very, whoa, She says, many women who would be shocked at the very thought of killing their children after birth deliberately destroy them previously. If there's any difference in the actual crime, we should be glad to have those who practice the latter, that's abortion, pointed out. The truth of the matter is is that it is just as much a murder to destroy life in its embryonic condition 
as it is to destroy life after the fully developed form is attained, for it is the self-same life that is taken. And so just kind of a final word on this, their view was not only that, that women, so when they're pregnant, owe these duties of care to their developing children, they also believe that any type of kind of allowances for abortion or seeing abortion is not a big deal would tilt the playing, the sexual playing field further in the male direction. Why? Because it would allow men to take women and then have the excuse of having abortion in the background. And this is exactly what, well, I think ends up happening in the 1970s, where there's this way in which abortion allows for a casual sex culture to come about, where women who would prefer to wait for commitment, which is at least studies show us that women prefer sex within commitment, there's a change that happens in those sexual mores because abortion is then available and is there for the taking if women should end up pregnant. Yeah, and you spend some time kind of on the intellectual history of the abortion rights movement. And I think it wasn't predetermined, right? So the founders of Planned Parenthood were actually anti-abortion and the National Organization of Women was not all about abortion rights until later. And you talked about how it was really kind of a marriage of the, I guess, the eugenicists, right? And how that was the eugenicists were the ones that were originally the advocates of abortion rights. When did that kind of shift happen where the women's rights movement went from being anti-abortion to pro-abortion rights? Yeah, this is, I think, really fascinating history. So one of the things that, you know, while at the very, you know, just about when women are obtaining suffrage, that's 1920 with the 19th Amendment, you then in the next decade have those labor protections that many like women like Florence Kelly were fighting for. And you have this push for protections for women in the workplace, but also protections for men. So there's more equality there. You have property rights, you have contract rights pushing forward, right? Well, while this is all happening and you have those, again, voluntary motherhood claims that I was making where there's this expectation of trying to have an expectation of men to kind of meet women at a high standard of care. So instead of having the double standard where women end up with the consequences of sexual activity and men walk away, they want everyone these women want men and women to, to sort of have a high standard of kind of sexual integrity and, and, and care for children and all that. Well, right along parallel paths with that, you have the emergence of Margaret Sanger. So Margaret Sanger is a nurse. She is working in really poor areas. She sees women having many more children that they either want or can handle in terms of their bodies. <laughs> and she sees a lot of vicious men who aren't willing to be chased or, in other words, to you know, abstain during times, they're pushing their sexual appetites on the women. So she is pushing for contraception. And so Planned Parenthood, her organization, is very much, first and foremost, a pro-contraception, anti-abortion outfit. So she's saying, look, we need contraception in order to make sure that women don't have to go and get these kind of dangerous underground abortions. And she also, frankly, is, you know, at least morally opposed to abortion. And so that's her view What's fascinating is that you also have her successor, Alan Guttmacher, is present during the time later when abortion is being debated. So abortion reform measures are being debated before Roe. Because remember, leading up to Roe, you have abortion restrictions, except for life of the mother mainly, but some rape and incest. But so there's a push for abortion reform among doctors, especially who are worried about getting their license revoked. And that's a whole complicated issue. But that's who is pushing. It's the doctors pushing for public health. And then it's people who are of kind of Margaret Sanger's ilk who start to see, okay, it's not just contraception who's going to keep a poor. This is the eugenic turn in, in, in Margaret's thought. There's 
who are going to keep the poor and the unwanted and the deplorables. We have all sorts of language of her being quite a eugenicist. So there's a push then really after her time of the population control advocates and eugenicists to to say we need abortion because contraception just isn't working. Why is it not working? Because of what happens really is that there's a way in which when contraception is taken up, especially the pill, even before the FDA approves it in 1960, women are like, American women are really wanting this thing. And so what ends up happening though, is there's a change in sexual risk-taking. So the moral hazard that's present before the pill where So people have this kind of incentive to master their appetites, to think about who they want to have sex with before. Well, that sort of changes, right? So there's a change in the way people engage in sex, not just within marriage, but then outside of marriage too. And so, I mean, they're especially, frankly, worried about exactly the population that they wanted contraception for, the poor, especially people of color. And they think maybe abortion is the way forward instead. And so that's when you have like Larry Later writing his big book, Abortion. You have a lot of population control people really pushing for abortion at that point. What's fascinating is that Planned Parenthood itself, this is Alan Gottmacher, who is the successor to Margaret Sanger. And he says, when abortion is easily available, contraception is neither actively or diligently used. So he's actually worried, look, if you open the gates to abortion on demand, which is beginning to be what is requested, then people aren't going to use contraception because, you know, it's at that point, it's not very pleasant and all that. So there's this fascinating shift that happens then. What I would say, and I think this is the point that I like to make because it works well in understanding conceptually what happens is those Wollstonecraft, those early women's rights advocates, they see that the change that is necessary or the response that is necessary to sexual and reproductive asymmetry, to these differences that in responsibilities that kind of befall men and women when it comes to sex and reproduction should be answered with moral and social and legal norms, right? But what happens with Margaret Sanger and then is that there's this technological shift. And so what answers asymmetry now, what answers the fact that men and women can engage in sex, but women get pregnant and men don't, is technology. So you have contraception and you have abortion. And when technology kind of fills in the gaps, again, you have this shift. So that's when you see the sexual revolution come about, more sexual risk-taking, more sort of casual sex as a sexual ethos that, that kind of takes over because we're relying now on technology instead of our development of kind of self-mastery in the sexual realm. Well, more, the interesting story from a social science perspective, which I think you, you probably could have written a whole another book on this, is just... We have these cultural shifts, we have these technological shifts, and we have these legal shifts. And it doesn't seem like there's a simple causal model that helps you understand what's driving what, right? So if, for instance, ease of contraception and abortion should presumably reduce the number of unwanted children, reduce the number of, say, children out of of wedlock, one would think, but that, that would presume ceteris paribus, right? But there are all these sort of flows that go between those three different domains, which lead to some unintended consequences. So do you have a causal story here about what's driving what? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think there's a linear story to be told, but I do think you're right to point out the very counterintuitive thing that happens when contraception floods the market and therefore becomes almost necessary. And that's the way that abortion advocates talk about it, is that really with contraception, Abortion becomes really necessary as this backstop if you're going to get to the what you wanted with contraception, which is preventing pregnancy, right? And so 
that's why they go together on both sides in some sense, right? And so these unintended consequences are now with us. <laughs> What's the causal story? I think there's a lot of different things going on. There's women entering the workplace because of the story I told before, which is with industrialization, with the rise of liberalism, capitalism, there's a, a need for sort of women to have a fallback. They can't be utterly economically dependent. They never have been. It's a dangerous place to be in. I mean, think of any, even conservative fathers who are like, ah, I think you need to get an educate. You need to have some sort of skills. What if your husband, leaves? you know what I mean? It's just, it puts women in a difficult situation. Even women who want to be home and raise children, like what do they do in that situation? You've got to have a man who really can trust his commitment and trust his promise to take care of you. And so that's a tricky thing, right? And so women enter the workplace for all different sorts of reasons. And so then there's this thing, and this is really fa a fascinating story too, where you mentioned National Organization for Women. And I think that's a great place to go here because I absolutely love the National Organization for Women original platform. It was written in 1966. And when you go and find it online, there's this little, this little line under it that says, these are not our current priorities <laughs> of the National Organization for Women. What's fascinating is that they talk about in that document, innovating. They're, they're like, we're Americans. We can innovate new social institutions, which can, I'm quoting now, enable women to enjoy true equality of opportunity and responsibility in society without conflict with their responsibilities as mothers. And so they're interested in, they have another place where they want better recognition of, I quote, the economic and social value of homemaking and childcare. That is the work of the home that was at that point disproportionately taken by women. And so they want both childcare and they want retraining for women who have dedicated themselves to the work of the home. You know, what ends up happening though, I mean, there's a, like a lot of ratchet effects, right? So you have women entering the workplace, you have women getting all sorts of kind of professional degrees. Then you have something like assortative mating where you have two professionals marrying each other. You have then all the costs of housing and schooling and all sorts of other things going up. And then you have single mothers who are like at the bottom of the barrel, especially if you're a person of color who's a single mother, right? Who doesn't have adequate healthcare and housing and all that. So it's just this um, this kind of incredible thing that sort of happened. A lot of conservatives will blame feminism for that. I think that the story is way more complicated, right? And so what ends up happening, fascinating, is right after National Organization for Women puts forward this idea of innovating solutions, like trying to find what you would think of now as like family-friendly workplaces, places where that take seriously our responsibilities as mothers and now we would say as fathers too, Instead, there's a push for abortion rights and not just abortion rights, but like abortion on demand. And so right away in the very next year, they change their platform and they request abortion on demand. And what I think is problematic about this is that right away, you're sort of, you're undercutting exactly what you just claimed you wanted to see, which was that valuing the work of the home. Because right away... <laughs> And this was actually an argument that was made, as far as I can understand, by this by Larry Later and Bernard Nathanson, both big abortion advocates. Bernard Nathanson later becomes a pro-life advocate. He's an OBGYN. And they basically go to Betty Friedan, and who wanted to have women control their reproduction. But I think, you know, she says, I was never in favor of abortion and all that, but she gets taken in. Why? Because she wants women to advance out in the professions because she's worried about the problem that has no name, the feminine mystique, women being miserable 
not all women, but some bit of women being miserable and, and dependent in their own homes, right? So she's pulled in by these guys saying, look, if you want to be in the workplace, you got to have abortion. You got to have access to abortion. And so there's this shift to that kind of Ginsburg-esque view of liberal citizenship, of entry into the workplace, but without children. We can't have the burden of children, of caregiving, the messiness of what it is to be a mother and now with, generationally speaking, fully engaged father who needs flexible work, who needs to be able to take really seriously those duties of care. And I think that's been a real problem. I think that's been a setback for the women's movement for the last few decades. Yeah. I mean, one thing I got from the book is I had gained a more greater appreciation for Betty Friedan. She was a complex person, right? She had a lot of rich thought, which changed over time. But I think one of the points you're making is that I I think that the, the modern feminist movement has maybe been hijacked by late capitalism, right? By the needs of corporate America and the needs to increase GDP. Is that a a fair summary of one of your conclusions? I think that's absolutely a fair summary. I think that there's a way in which we have this vision of equality that is very emaciated. It's like this idea of market equality. So long as kind of, instead of us taking seriously that first idea of national organization for women of like the work of the home, it's like everybody has to be a breadwinner now. And then we have this assumption that children are kind of warehoused all day. And so we need more and more money for daycare. And I don't think that's exactly what parents want for their children. And it certainly isn't what upper and middle class families are doing for their children. And so there is a way in which we've just basically allowed for the needs of the market to really, I think, inform what the feminist movement has requested. And so there's a way in which like economic libertarians and these I think like push this push for market equality, the girl boss kind of feminists have sort of joined arms <laughs> in fighting for these things. Now, there are women who wouldn't agree with me entirely on my position who have very much been pushing back against this idea, wanting sort of care work to be taken more seriously. There have been relational feminists, care feminists, dependency feminists who have been critiquing this liberal view of citizenship of autonomy for decades and decades. And I've learned tons from many of them. Robin West, Eva Fetter Kitte, and all those great kind of feminist theorists of a different kind of, uh, that have been pushing against against autonomy as the be-all and end-all. My worry is that they haven't brought care, like the real requirements and demands of care far enough into their thought. And so For instance, Anne-Marie Slaughter, I think, has done great work in trying to shift the conversation with her article many years ago, Women Still Can't Have It All, but thinking a lot about care work. But the problem is, is that care work is still always thought about as somebody else doing the care, right? And so so it's who are the care workers? They're daycare workers. When I, I really think, I mean, if you look at the polling and look at American Compass polling in terms of class, in terms of, you know, socioeconomic class. A lot of middle class and lower middle class women and men too would rather have someone in the home caring for children. And so I think because of the flexibility of upper class work, there's a way in which upper class people can kind of have a professional work and to not realize the massive burden that, you know, women in other classes, lower classes who have just in time scheduling, who have all sorts of requirements for them to get back to work. We don't have enjoyable work and would much rather be with their children. I just think we need to listen more to those who would prefer to be in the home and prefer to be caring for their children at home, would prefer to see the work of the home 
that both mothers and fathers engage in as having great value as getting back to the Wilson crafting insight as kind of underlying every social, political, and economic good. And that we forgot about that. And I think thinking about what children really need to become independent, mature, not only workers, not only citizens, but friends and spouses and siblings and neighbors and all of that, I think is a really important shift that, that needs to happen. So it seems like that sort of hollowed out vision is, has as its godmother, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I wasn't familiar with her work, but she, that was her vision, right? That you could be a full participant in the workforce and just sort of outsource all of the childcare and domestic responsibilities. Yeah, it's great to bring her up because so she is this really fascinating figure from, I would say, the late 19th century, early 20th century. So she does push. I mean, she also advocates voluntary motherhood. She advocates chastity. Why? Because of the importance of the child and all that. But she is in her book, Women in Economics, she's really pushing for kind of Whereas I talk about how these other women's rights advocates are pushing to keep the logic of the kind of capitalist market, pushing to keep it out of the household to make sure that they can still inculcate virtue within the household. She's sort of like, no, let's bring it all in. (laughs) So let's have a way in which efficiency and all of that is informing the way we do household production. So she wants moms and dads. I mean, she really thinks moms are great. She thinks it's like a very high and noble aspiration, but she wants them to be really thinking about kind of loving children and just love, like any type of kind of work and production that happens inside the home, which again, is most of what was going on in the home for a long, long time and still is going on in the home, though, of course, not nearly to the extent. She basically wants to say she wants kitchenless houses. (laughs) She wants professional daycare class. And so everybody can get into the workplace. And so I make a comment that, that her vision is for another time because it certainly is. It's certainly one that you sort of see um, in some sense in some kind of version of feminism today, for sure. You end the book with a chapter on Marion Glendon, who is in many ways a Wollstonecraft of our time, right? In- including something of a shared personal history, you know, and that she was an abandoned woman early in her life, right? And I remember reading Wright's talk probably 30 years ago or so, and really enjoying that book. But I I don't think she's seen as mainstream in kind of feminist thinking today. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. So Marion Glendon, for those who don't know her, she is a now retired, so emeritus professor of Harvard Law School and gained a lot of notoriety in the 1990s with several really important books on the family and then including Wright's Talk. So Wright's Talk is her most widely read popular book where she's really critiquing from a communitarian perspective, the way in which Americans always rush to use Wright's Talk in any of their language, almost as any other arguments, like as a rhetorical trump on everyone else. She was very much part of the then, I think, pretty powerful communitarian movement, which was from both the center-left and the center critiquing the rise of kind of liberalism, individualism, this autonomy stuff that we've been talking about. So it included... So the abortion debate is is all about women's rights versus, you know, unborn children's rights, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's right. And that's actually a way in which she helps me and then other kind of teachers of mine helped me reframe that I don't really talk about it that way. I really talk about in in terms of justice or duties of care, what are the duties of care that we owe unborn children, that we owe mothers and all that? I think it's just a much better way to talk about what we're actually talking about when we talk about rights is questions of justice, right? Questions, what do we owe each other? She was tapped by both the Carter and Reagan administrations to be 
a judicial nominee, wasn't interested, really found her place in the academy as kind of a scholar because all of her teachers, as she says, were scholars. She was one of the first women, or if not the first woman, I'm forgetting now, on the University of Chicago Law Review. She's really a noted and really important thinker, human rights and comparative constitutional law, and now really religious liberty. I think one of the reasons she's now in her 80s, so we don't hear from her as much anymore, but she's still really working on these questions of religious liberty and international human rights. And that's where she really shifted. She did a great book on Eleanor Roosevelt shaping of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So she's not doing as much work maybe in the family, and that's why we don't, we're not hearing from her as much. I'm certainly trying to push forward kind of her vision in this book, because I think you're right. She really, because of being abandoned when she had her first child and, and unexpectedly becoming a single mother as a practicing attorney. Um, she really understands kind of human dependency and interdependency like at her core. And so there's a way in which she understands kind of the work of civil society. So the families, schools, churches, other kinds of institutions as building around the individual institutions of what she calls mutual care and concern that without those you just you can't just have a society that thinks about like the individual and the market and the state there's this whole realm of the family and family supporting institutions that ought to be around surrounding the individual and the individual's growth within the family and so that's why she really was able to kind of join hands with people like Michael Sandel at Harvard Emmett Tazioni who died recently as part of the communitarian movement in the 1990s which really informed I think Bill Clinton quite a bit in his passage of the Family Medical Leave Act at that time and other types of kind of family supportive, not as much as we need, but at least a push toward family supportive legislation. So look, if you wanted to bring virtue and the cultivation of virtue back into the conversation, and if you wanted to strengthen the importance of care and family, how can you do it? You talk about how the law shapes how we tell our stories and how we live. I mean, is this something that starts with legal reform? Or is this something which would start with a change in, in the culture and the way in which we discuss these things? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that these are mutually influencing, <laughs> always mutually influencing, right? So one of the insights that Marianne and those communitarians had is that there's a way in which in America, if you don't have a conscious family policy, if you're not thinking about the family policy, that there's a family policy by chance, and it really is libertarian because of not having kind of family within our constitution, because of having rights very much at the center of how we think about ourselves as American, everything shifts towards that kind of self-determining unencumbered individual because of Locke being really foundational to how we think. And so you have to have some supportive family policy because otherwise you're- Where does family policy live? Like in, in the government, we don't have a secretary of family, right? I mean, we don't have Why not? Department <laughs> of family regulation. Right. Is Because normally we think of it as there's private law, right? There's family law. And then there's obviously discrimination law, which is at the federal level. But wh where is policy, family policy set? I think in some ways it probably is in the IRS. I mean, that's where it might start in some sense is like, there's a lot of great scholars who are do doing work on how tax policy negatively in in influences and impacts, you know, men and women decide to marry or have children and those kinds of things. So I think the very first thing is like to make sure that there aren't marriage penalties, to make sure that there aren't ways in which the way I kind of always think about it is that those who are raising children ought not be disproportionately disadvantaged by having children, right? And so a lot of people think like, wait, the government shouldn't get, you know, shouldn't kind of put their thumb on 
the scale in support of families. And it's like, well, other if it doesn't, it's really putting their thumb on the scale of kind of the individual, right? And so I think if we want to, it's not so much, I'm not in favor of this idea because I don't think we've seen a lot of uh, evidence that it works of like paying people to have children. I don't think there's kind of, uh, I'm not a pronatalist in that way, that if you give lots of money, then people will go out and have children. But I do believe that if you have a more just structure that, that, you know, whether it's a family allowance or whether it's, you know, refundable tax deductions or whatever it is where people, because they have far more economic burdens when they bring, when they are raising children, then they, then the tax policy should really be weighted sort of in favor of giving them some help, right? So it's not an issue of welfare. It's an issue of justice. And I think that's a really important thing for kind of libertarians to see is that if you want families to form, they, they have to be economically capable of doing so. There's a lot of debate around this right now. You know, is it just people's economic decisions that are keeping them from having as many children as they like, you know, and, and all of that. And I'll leave that to kind of the policy experts who are really debating the numbers. But I just think there's, at least culturally speaking, we're hearing that people aren't having as many children as they want. There's a lot of, there's, there are economic levers to pull here. However, I think there's a lot of cultural levers to pull. And that is, I think that there's a way in which, you know, we have become sort of like a consumerist culture in which we're most interested in kind of the next great, you know, material advantage in terms of tech or really being able to kind of be unencumbered and do whatever we want. And we, and I think we discount those who are single and haven't yet had children. They discount the really, I don't know, just incredible purpose and meaning raising children both brings to their lives, but also how it matures us as human beings. So, you know, how do you talk about virtue and care? I think I'd love to see more use of the word virtue. You know, we usually think of it as like virtue signaling and not a positive way. But I think it always has to be defined. And so when I say virtue, I usually right away talk about human excellence, whether it's moral and intellectual excellence. And why do we want to be excellent? Virtue is basically like excellence in a human being. And so if you think about it, we want to be excellent in, most of us want to be excellent in everything we do, right? You want to be excellent at your work. You want to be excellent if you're like a kid playing soccer. You want to be the best, you know, you want to be excellent. So you take on the kind of disciplines that allow you to become excellent. So if you want to be an excellent piano player, if you want to be an excellent soccer player, you have to take on those really difficult disciplines of becoming excellent. And I think the same is true in becoming an excellent human being. And that's what virtue really does, is it really cultivates those human appetites that we have toward kind of our highest end, right? Toward being these kind of, you know, rational creatures who are, um, you know, I think ordered really to goodness and truth and beauty and friendship and really caring for one another, carrying out those responsibilities we have to one another. And so that's what really virtue is. You know, when, we, when we're just, we're making sure that we're giving each, you know, his or her due, what they're owed, you know. When we're temperate, we're making sure that we're not like eating that fourth cookie, right? But we're making sure that our lower bodily appetites are not ruling us, but we're really governing them, right? You know, when we're courageous, we're not, you know, we're looking at the fear and we're going ahead anyway, but we're not being intemperate about it, right? So. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which like learning Aristotle's account of virtue, not even a religious account, right? But Aristotle's account of that golden mean and trying to find ways to inculcate in ourselves, especially in inculcating in our children, those kinds of virtuous habits, I think would allow us to be much happier people than we, than we are today. Do we have to get to the point where if you ask someone, a young person, you know, what they want to do when they grow up and they can say, I want to be a good parent or good 
spouse that that is not seen as an inadequate answer. <laughs> that is seen as a legitimate pursuit, right? Yeah, that's right. And actually, let me just add to that, that one of the things that I think feminists for a long time have had to do in the workplace, or women have had to do, is they've had to hide their responsibilities at home, right? What I would prefer we did was for men to start talking about their responsibilities at home and what they did with their kids and how much they love being with their kids. Because frankly, men do love being with their kids, at least the ones I know. I see it on LinkedIn profiles now where pe- people will say, occupation, dad, <laughs> Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's just awesome. And that's just awesome because I think more and more time men are spending with their children and it frees women up to say the things that they would want to be saying anyway about their children. And it frees men up too to seek more flexible workplaces for their own responsibilities at home. And that so that women can be free to do the same. I think that's where people like Anne-Marie Slaughter and others are right. That if you were to like have a whole culture that sort of started to prioritize care And care work in the home too, like caring as mothers and fathers for their own children, that women would be much freed from having to hide those things about themselves. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? This, you know, woman who sort of iconic feminist, right? She had to hide that she was a mother in law school. She, I think, didn't get work immediately because she was a mother. So I think those are the kind of things that certainly both left and right, or at least center left and center right, could come together to really work toward is a culture that really sees those duties of care, responsibilities of care in the home as something that is not only important for our like civilization, but also sees it as really edifying personally as something that really, I think, you know, allows people to really find a lot of purpose and meaning. And the other thing that it does too, is it creates communities all of those people who are raising children, because who wants to raise their children alone, right? You want friendships with parents, other parents who are doing the same, because it's hard work. It's very hard work. And so you want mentors, you want others who you look at them and you say, wow, you raised some great kids. How'd you do it? And you spend some time with them. All those things are layers that, you know, when people talk about the care infrastructure, it can't just be about policy and daycare workers being, you know, paid better. All is great, right? But it has to be about the care that we take, the nurture, the commendation of parents in the home. And that work is really important and that the economy exists for the work they're doing, not the other way around. And I would love to see that kind of shift in in how we talk about that. Yeah. And I think we're seeing some trends, at least in the employment environment, where the competition for good employees is getting pretty tough. And so they're competing on flexibility, right? So I think it's enabling a different type of career path, right? Where you don't have to start your career by working 16-hour days, you can maybe start your career with a less demanding work schedule and then smooth it out a little more over your lifetime, particularly because we're living longer. So there's no no urgency, right, in the early years to become the partner and so forth. And I'd love if employers would ask, like people who have those, quote, holes in their resumes, ask them what they were doing. Were you playing video games? Probably not. Were you caring for people? Tell me how that work of organizing a household, of caring for children, of all the different work that mothers and sometimes stay-at-home fathers do or part-time, whatever, how does that make you the kind of person that I want to hire? And I just think that's a great question to ask because I'll tell you, people would know, people would be able to say it. And why hide that? Why hide that incredibly formative time in people's lives? I think it's. I think it would be great to see more and more of that. I think you're right that you're seeing it in competition for people like in the tech sector and certainly more among pediatricians. Claudia Golden kind of talks about this, right? But We got to see that among those doing wage labor, because that's where there's not flexibility. There's this just-in-time scheduling that should be like outlawed in every state. And so that we can allow those 
men and women who are working multiple jobs, who are trying to figure out how to make ends meet, to be able to spend time with their children, to do all the things that, you know, those who have more cushy jobs are able to do and really able to prioritize. And I think that's got to be something that we see our, put our eyes on in policy, especially. Well, Erica, thanks so much for joining me. The book is called The Rights of Women. It's a wonderful book. Check it out. You've got some other books here. I've got this one from way back. It's called The Cost of Choice. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.